Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The legislature is back from its recess and the two chambers are approaching their work in different ways. One with a critical eye towards budgets and the other hoping to wrap up next week. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Senate Assistant Minority Leader Grant Burgoyne gives us his take on end of the session negotiations and the future of property tax policy. And Senate President Pro Tem Chuck Winder updates us on talks between the House and Senate on taxes and budgets. But first, let's get you caught up on the week. The legislature returned from a two and a half week recess on Tuesday and didn't waste any time picking up where they'd left off. On Tuesday, the House killed the Department of Health and Welfare's Division of Welfare budget and on Wednesday shot down the higher education budget. Floor sponsor Representative Paul Amador had asked the House to reject that higher education budget so the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee could rework it. But members took the opportunity to debate the budget anyway and lay out their priorities for the next version, namely punishing colleges and universities for so-called social justice programs. You can find that debate on our YouTube channel. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. On Tuesday, the Senate debated a fetal heartbeat bill that would restrict abortions in Idaho. That bill, sponsored by Senator Patty Ann Lodge, would prohibit abortion if a fetal heartbeat is detected. The bill does have exemptions for pregnancy resulting from rape or incest, but the victim must provide a copy of a police report, which raised concerns from Democrats. This legislation would provide legal precedence in Idaho law upholding that abortion could not be performed in the state after a heartbeat is determined by a medical professional. The advancement in medical technologies have taken huge steps in saving the lives of preborn children and pregnant women. When my children were preborn, a stethoscope was used to hear the heartbeat. As technology gets better and better, we can hear things going on. What that does require is the intrusiveness of a vaginal ultrasound, which is a wand about 15 inches long that is inserted into the vagina. Now, the reason I wanted to say that is because the problem that I have with the bill is the, is the language on page two that purports to grant an exception for victims of rape but requires a police report. Requires a police report. It's really quite difficult to get a police report during an active investigation. I know this from experience. And police records are exempt from disclosure. That bill passed the Senate in a 28 to 7 vote. The House State Affairs Committee heard testimony on the fetal heartbeat bill on Friday and ultimately sent it to general orders for amendments. 
On Wednesday, Senate Bill 1110 hit the House floor. That legislation would require citizens to collect signatures from 6% of voters in all 35 legislative districts in order to get an initiative on the ballot. Current Idaho law requires signatures from 6% of qualified electors in just 18 legislative districts. The bill was drafted after Idahoans passed Medicaid expansion through a ballot initiative. We don't need support from all 35 districts in here. I really wish we did most of the time, but we don't. Uh, and, and there is absolutely no reason why we should put this incredibly stifling restriction when it's the people trying to pass a bill. If y'all are afraid of what the people of Idaho want to do and what their agenda is, um, and you feel it's important to block that, you may be in the wrong line of work. This ballot initiative process is in our Constitution, but what also is in our Constitution is the right for the legislature to set the parameters of the ballot initiative process. This is wholly within the right of the 35 districts represented in this room and in the room across the rotunda to make that uh, to, to set that way what is appropriately. So this is not stepping outside of something that's constitutional. It is wholly constitutional for us to address this in this way. This is an effort to protect the voice in the law of everybody in Idaho in the lawmaking process, very similar to what we do here as representatives and to what the senators do as well. That bill passed the House 51 to 18 and is now in the governor's hands for signature or veto. In response, Reclaim Idaho, the organization that successfully led the effort to expand Medicaid in 2018, filed another voter initiative that would restore Idaho to its original voter initiative requirements. 10% of voters who had participated in the previous gubernatorial election, regardless of where in the state they live. The organization has said it will campaign on the act only only if Senate Bill 1110 becomes law and survives court challenges. On Thursday, representatives of Reclaim Idaho and former Idaho Supreme Court Justice Jim Jones presented a petition with more than 16,000 signatures to the governor's office asking him to veto the bill. While all this plays out publicly, lawmakers from both the House and Senate are working behind the scenes to come to a consensus on major issues like budgets, transportation, and taxes. On Friday, I spoke to Senate Assistant Minority Leader Grant Burgoyne to get his take on what the legislature needs to get done before heading home. Thanks so much for joining us today, Senator Burgoyne. I, I wanted to start by asking you, what are the issues that you think the legislature absolutely has to address before adjourning, besides the constitutional mandate and setting the budget? Well, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to just say about the budget. First, we have the state budget to deal with, and then we have the federal funds, the um, American Recovery Act plan, uh, to deal with, uh, and we can talk more about that later perhaps, but it, it could be a huge game changer for the state of Idaho in a very positive way. And uh, so um, budgetary issues are huge, um, but uh, probably at this point, uh, the biggest um, legislation that we need to resolve in order to adjourn uh, is um, taxes. Uh, we have the um, House passed uh, state income tax uh, cuts, uh, which the Senate has now uh, put into its amending order. Um, I think there's a, a disposition uh, in the Senate that uh, a different approach 
of some type needs to be taken, whether those are minor tweaks or whether that is uh, something major is uh, yet to be seen. Uh, but um, I think uh, there'll be a lot of uh, discussions and activities surrounding that in the Senate and uh, how that comes out and whether we're able to reach agreement with the House will be uh, the primary uh, determinant about when we adjourn. And, and I do want to talk about budget issues, but you know, income taxes aren't the only concern of Idahoans and lawmakers. I know that property tax has been a big concern for you as, a, as an elected official. Efforts don't seem to be going anywhere this year. Are you confident that the legislature can start to make some progress on property taxes over the summer? Uh, one of the things I think I've learned in life is that deadlines matter and deadlines are helpful. Uh, and um, we are now beginning to get up against deadlines. Uh, not only do individual legislators have a need to wrap up this session, but our constituents have a need for us to wrap up this session. And that political reality uh, is hitting home now. And uh, so these deadlines are going to force us uh, to come to grips with things uh, that frankly through the rest of the session have kind of gotten kicked down the road. And so we are gonna come to grips with taxes. We have to, we can't adjourn without it. And we're not staying here until June or July. So um, uh, it's gonna get resolved one way or the other. Um, property taxes are a huge issue and there's a broad consensus in my area across the entire Treasure Valley that what we need to do is expand the homeowner's exemption and pass a circuit breaker bill uh, that will provide tax relief to Idaho's most vulnerable citizens and everyone else. And that tax relief needs to be focused on residential properties uh, where we have unique factors that are um, simply making it impossible uh, for people to afford their property taxes. Um, now that can be done in a number of ways and I'm gonna keep as open a mind and be as flexible as I can be. If we can cut income taxes in a way where everybody from the bottom of the income scale to the top of the income scale um, uh, sees meaningful relief, then Idahoans will have more money in their pocket with which to pay their uh, property taxes. Uh, my preferred method would be to address property taxes directly. Um, but um, other people in this building have other ideas. And if we want to help our constituents, uh, we have to be as flexible and as accommodating to those other ideas as we can be. And I have to say some of the people in the building with other ideas are pretty important when it comes to tax policy discussions. And I'm thinking, of course, of the Senate local government and taxation chairman and the House Tax Committee chairman. Um, so how, how do you, after discourse this past session over property taxes and the proposal which died in the Senate to cap local government spending. Do you think that that reset the discussion in a productive way or are you still that much further from coming to a consensus? Well, I, it's very hard to tell at any given moment how close we are to uh, achieving agreement. Uh, consensus uh, is something I think uh, at least I always strive for and, and other legislators do too. On the other hand, uh, we do see tax policy passed uh, through the legislature. 
without a consensus uh, and a simple majority. Sometimes Republicans and Democrats are able to gather, get together and, and sometimes not. Sometimes uh, Republicans are able to get together with each other and sometimes not. Uh, and the same can hold true for Democrats. So um, it's, it's just a little early. I think sometime next week, we're going to begin to see what might be possible in the Senate uh, about uh, tax policy. Senators are going to have to work out that issue amongst themselves. And then um, once the Senate has worked out issues amongst themselves. They've got to get together with the House and see what we can accomplish. Um, obviously, there are some key points. How much money can we afford um, to uh, spend on tax cuts? Um, I am more bullish than I've ever been about that. Um, I'm, I'm generally of the view that we should have relatively little in the way of tax cuts uh, and have always opposed tax increases. Um, but um, with the 5% holdback uh, that, uh, that Governor Little imposed and other factors, including growing revenues despite the pandemic recession, um, we have been sitting on an enormous surplus. And while some of those monies have gotten committed through the course of this session and that surplus is somewhat smaller now, we can well afford to provide the kind of tax relief that residential property owners need, for example. Not everybody agrees with what I just said, and they're going to have a more constrained view of our budget and more worry about what might happen in the future with respect to uh, whether there are going to be further economic problems that impact Idaho uh, and uh, constrain the budget. But we, I have constituents who are losing their houses today, and I am not prepared to see my constituents lose their homes today because of worries, theoretical at this point, about a recession in two or three years that might constrain our revenues. We'll have to deal with that then. So I'm, I'm prepared to be fairly bullish about the amount of money that we put into uh, tax cuts. I have more with Senator Burgoyne online, including his take on transportation needs and funding sources. You'll find that on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. It's a great conversation. You should check it out. Also, Friday, Senate President Pro Tem Chuck Winder joined me to talk about negotiations between the House and Senate, what additional work the Joint Budget Committee has in front of it, and what we can expect from the Senate on transportation and taxes. Thanks so much for joining us today, Senator. I wanted to first ask about the Senate clearing its third reading calendar while the House still has a number of things left to do um, and has killed a number of appropriations bills. Is the House on a completely different page when it comes to when the legislature needs to adjourn? And is the Senate trying to send a message by clearing its reading calendar that you wanna wrap things up and get home? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the House made the request for the uh, recess because of the COVID outbreak on the House side, and we agreed with that, concurred, and, and went home. Um, we had hoped to be done <clears throat> by the 26th of March. Uh, we now hope to be done by April 16th. Um, we think we're getting closer to some agreement with the House on that. Um, our effort to uh, clear our calendar is to send that message that uh, our members are ready to uh, to be done and to go home and, and get back to their uh, 
families and their way of life, their farming, their ranching. Uh, these are critical times of the year for them. So we're trying to get done as quickly as we can. And, and uh, there's still a lot of work to be done yet for appropriations and things like that that uh, are taking a little longer than normal. But uh, we hope to be done by, have all of our work done by next uh, Friday. And uh, we may have to wait a five day period for uh, veto issues, but uh, hopefully by next Friday, we have all of our business finished between the two bodies. What are you hearing from your appropriations chairman? Is that, considering how many budgets are still left out there, is that realistic? Uh, yeah, it is. They have a plan. They can actually be finished by the 14th uh, with their part of it. Um, that means, you know, we have their uh, budgets. Uh, every time the house kills a budget, probably adds a day or two. Um, you know, the things they're, they're concerned about are more policy issue than they are budget issues, but, you know, they haven't taken the time yet to put it into policy, uh, what their concerns are. This wouldn't be the first time that the Senate and the House haven't quite seen eye to eye on how to approach some of these issues. <laughs> I, I've been no, around for a Last in the future either. There's a natural... Uh, just kind of uh, tension between the bodies. Uh, if they, if the original uh, drafters of our constitution wanted it to be easier, they would have just had one uh, branch of government, but that, it's, that doesn't work very well in a democracy. So you have to have these two branches and, and then the, the uh, of the legislature and the governor. And so that's, it's natural to have some tension, but we're actually working closer together than it might appear. You know, and, and that's not the only tension when we're talking about balance of powers and seeing things differently that we've talked about this session. There was a lot of talk early on, um, especially in January and February, about the balance of powers between the legislative and executive branches. We haven't seen much past both the House and the Senate. Are we going to see bills addressing either the governor's powers or the Department of Health and Welfare's powers come out of both chambers before your um, goal end date of April 16th? Yeah, I think you will. There's one bill that's already been signed into law that requires a health district order to uh, be approved by each county commission uh, in that uh, district. <clears throat> we think that's important. Uh, there's a Senate Bill 11, uh, 36, which uh, deals with extreme emergencies. That's actually passed both bodies, but it was amended in the House. Uh, we have to concur in those, which we did yesterday. Uh, we will take that up and, and uh, vote on it um, later today. Uh, so I think we'll have that one done. Uh, we're going to uh, amend House Bill 135, uh, and we've done that. Uh, we'll take that up, I believe, uh, this morning. Uh, so we hope to have those done. That those 135 actually deals with ordinary or natural disasters. So I think we'll have that done. Uh, there's a uh, one of the reasons that we didn't just end everything with a concurrent resolution, which we talked about doing, and there were several of them went back and forth in the first week or two, was we found out that under the current code, uh, we wouldn't qualify for the federal funds uh, to come in unless we had an actual emergency declaration in place. Uh, the new 
uh, codes that we're putting out there would uh, add a word as arising out of uh, that would allow for the state to continue to receive funds without actually having to, on a 30-day uh, uh, process, renew those declarations. And that's what's been going on for years. There's some emergencies that related to flood and, and other uh, uh, problems in the state that we receive mon money for over a longer period of time, but the emergency is actually over uh, and the new law would allow the governor to uh, receive the funds without having to continue the declarations of emergency. So we think there, we're making good progress. Is there concern that that would run afoul of federal law that the federal government might see it a little bit differently that if you don't have that in place, you can't continue to receive those federal funds? Yeah, and, and the legislation that we proposed is, is that the governor would have the right to continue the emergencies that's required to receive the funds. Uh, but we believe we've worked with Homeland Security and we've worked uh, with the governor's office and we think we've come to some uh, language that by using a rising out of that emergency, that that would then qualify us to, uh, to have the uh, federal funds coming in. Uh, the real issue that we deal with is do we have the matching funds in some cases, and that does take an act of the legislature. So I think we've kind of balanced it out. We put a pretty light touch on it, but we think we've resolved uh, a lot of the significant issues that we experienced during this extremely un unusual year of uh, 2020. You know, as you're talking about your concerns with executive branch overreach, I wanted to ask you about a, a press release that actually just came into my inbox as we were having this discussion about Republican leadership um, in, in their words, discovering immunization registry violations that um, the, the state's immunization registry doesn't necessarily allow for the collection of data on adult vaccinations. Can you, can, can you talk to me about your concerns about this registry that's, that's been around for years? Well, the registry is uh, for children. Um, and that's the, re, you know, keeping track of uh, uh, child vaccinations, but they applied that to saying, uh, well, you aged out of being a child, but you're still getting vaccine. So you can be added to the registry. And we're basically objecting to that. We don't think that's what the uh, current code says. And, and that's the reason for, we wrote a letter to uh, directly to health and welfare and, and gave them notice of our concerns. And we also wanted the public to be aware uh, so that they're aware that their information uh, may be co being collected. Now, is your proposed fix changing the code to allow for this information to be collected or do you want the department to stop entirely? We want the department to stop. Does that potentially there raise There is concern? no code authorizing them to to collect it for adults. Does that raise concerns that medical providers won't have accurate information if people switch between healthcare systems, for example, or get one dose in one city and another dose in another city? No, it really doesn't because, you know, if you're going to your doctor, to your healthcare provider, there's going to be part of your medical record. Uh, also, the way the vaccinations for, uh, at least for COVID, is you're getting a vaccination card. Uh, I have a little yellow card that I get at the district health office 
uh, when I've traveled and had to get, you know, shots to do international travel. Uh, so there is a record, you know, you can, you can have that information, uh, but uh, with such a widespread vaccinating process as COVID is, re is necessitating, uh, we don't think it's right under the current laws uh, for them to actually collect that data. You know, something that we will continue to follow, right. certainly. Right. Um, and they haven't know, on, yet, so we don't know what their response will be. We've only had some verbal communication with them. You know, um, back to the legislature on Thursday, the Senate Local Government and Taxation Committee sent the House Income Tax Proposal to the amending order. What sort of amendments might we see, and is there any risk of the House not concurring to those? Well, there's always a risk of the House not concurring. They they don't like us messing around with their uh, tax bills. The Constitution allows them to originate uh, revenue bills, uh, but we also know that uh, the Senate has the right to amend those. Now, politically, that does go back to the tension I talked about earlier in this. Uh, and uh, so they don't like us doing that, but we certainly have the right to do that. Uh, I think when we actually amend uh, 332 that we'll probably have an agreement uh, in place as to uh, how to amend it uh, between the two bodies. Uh, and as long as we do that, I think they'll probably be okay with the amendments. We've done that on 1136, which is a powers of the governor, uh, 135, again, powers of the governor. So we've worked together very well trying to come up with what we think are necessary and reasonable uh, amendments on very key legislation this time. And I think that that's, in fact, we met this morning, had ongoing discussions about exactly that as to how we uh, advance uh, House Bill 332 and the potential uh, tax breaks and returns that that would give the people. What kind of amendments might we expect from that? Well, I think there's some uh, questions about, you know, the brackets themselves, the uh, percentage uh, of uh, reduction in the uh, individual tax rate and corporate tax rate. Uh, there's also some discussion depending upon how much ongoing money we have, uh, potentially uh, doing some other you know, property tax relief uh, things. So I, it's we're at that final stage of trying to to blend everything together and come up with uh, with a good package, which I think we will, uh, and we'll have that uh, debate and discussion next week. How about transportation funding? As we're speaking on Friday morning, the Senate Transportation Committee, of course, hasn't yet taken up the House proposal on transportation funding. What are you hearing from your caucus on their feelings on the House's proposal? Uh, we haven't actually talked about it in caucus per se. The uh, uh, Chairman Den Hartog uh, on our side has uh, given some kind of updates as, as negotiations have progressed over the last couple of weeks to caucus, but we just received their final bill uh, yesterday. Uh, it appears to be something that I personally can support. Uh, but that's going to be up to each individual within our caucus. And we also have the uh, minority uh, weighing in on these issues. But we think there's a real need for infrastructure improvements. Some will be one time, 
Uh, some will be, you know, ongoing and, and uh, there'll be some, at least in the form it is now, significant bonding that could occur uh, for the state, for state projects, which benefit both the state system and the local system because our state highways do go through uh, communities and serve, you know, local communities. So we think there's benefit there uh, and funds would, would potentially be dispersed to both uh, local and to Idaho Transportation Department. All right, April 16th, I am going to mark my calendar. <laughs> Senate President Pro Tem, Chuck Winter, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Melissa. After our interview, the Senate passed the bill regarding the governor's emergency powers 25 to 10. The Idaho Reports team will continue our online coverage on social media and the Idaho Reports blog. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.